You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Hey, investors, Bradley here from Watson Estates, and you're listening to the largest, fastest growing podcast for Toronto real estate on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We like to keep in the know with what's going on in the news and share with friends like you. But we're on a rampage these days, connecting with really big players with different perspectives to give you guys a fuller understanding on how the real estate market works. And maybe there's some solutions for us during this affordability crisis. Today, joining us on the show is MPP of University Rosedale, Jessica Bell. She's also the lead critic for housing for the NDP with respect to the Ontario government. And we had a good conversation today talking about some of the major issues that we face at the provincial level. Where are some roadblocks? How can things improve? And some different ideas that the NDP have. I thought there was some good insight today. And absolutely, you're going to learn some stuff. If you could support the show, hit the like button, leave a comment if you have anything down below. Obviously, this is a political conversation. Don't go too cray cray. But, you know, let's chat. Let's have a dialogue on maybe some solutions because I think somewhere in the mix of all of these different parties and advocacy groups and associations, there are real solutions that we can maybe apply. And having a conversation at this level, hopefully it'll fall into the right ears. I know you guys are going to get a ton of value. Enjoy the show. Jessica, thank you for joining us on the show. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me. I, I see your name in the media all the time as we're constantly navigating the news and trying to figure out what's going on. And I thought, you know what, let's get you on the show and get uh, a different perspective than the political powers at be. But maybe before we get started, tell us a little bit about you and, um, and your journey through the political sphere. Sure. I'm the MPP for University of Rosedale, and I'm the Ontario NDP's housing critic. I um, became interested in housing when I was young because my uh, mother actually uh, lost her home during the 1990s uh, interest rate crisis and she could no longer afford her mortgage payments. And that experience was common all across uh, Australia. And it's uh, an issue that was also happening in Canada at the time. Uh, since I've been an elected official, the biggest issue in my riding is affordable housing. My riding is 60% renter and uh, University Rosedale has some of the most expensive rents in the country. It's very desirable. The university, University of Toronto is in my riding. So there are a lot of students there. And then there are a lot of healthcare workers, uh, professionals who are really, um, they want to live downtown so that they can walk to work, take public transit to work. So the demand uh, for rental housing is extremely high in my riding. So that's one of the reasons uh, why housing is the, the issue that I spend the majority of my time on as an MPP. Yeah, and I can see why they would select you as that kind of role, you know. Um, when we look across Ontario, Toronto's often, I think we're seeing a little more of Ottawa creeping up, but it seems to be a Toronto show in the media, um, even at the national level. So um, Wonderful. Well, I really do appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, as many of our listeners know, I am generally a conservative, but I do love different ideas from the other side of the table and often will adapt them myself. And we have a variety of listeners with different views on how to deal with housing. So I really wanted to get another perspective on it and get an idea of what the NDP's kind of thoughts are there and yours as well, personally, because I think right now, 
if nothing else, we need some ideas. So maybe to start off, what would you say when you look at housing? Well, we'll get into the tenants a little bit later, but when we look at housing specifically, what are some of the major issues that you're seeing that your that your constituents are saying we need to deal with? Mm-hmm. The biggest issues uh, that I am seeing in how I mean, let's just uh, straight up housing and climate change are the two biggest issues that I think uh, Ontarians are facing right now. Uh, housing is the number one issue I hear at the door. So typically when I canvass, I will ask, uh, you know, someone at the door, you know, what's on your mind today? What are you hearing in the news? What are you concerned about? And housing comes up the most often. And the affordability of housing affects people on every level. So we have a homelessness crisis, as most people who live downtown are fully aware, you walk by a lot of the downtown parks right now and you see people sleeping in tents. No one wants to sleep in a tent, especially in winter. They have to because there's nowhere to go. So we have a, a homelessness crisis. And then the next level up, we have some of the most expensive rents uh, in Canada. And that renter affordability crisis has spread from Toronto to across southern Ontario and beyond. We're seeing people, not just low-income people, but also middle-income people uh, who are struggling to find that two, three-bedroom stable apartment or a home that they can build a life in if they're uh, if they can't afford a, a home yet. And then finally, on the um, first-time homebuyer front, these folks that you know have enough saved or are aiming to have enough saved, they are having difficulty finding a home that they can afford, not just in terms of the down payment, but also in terms of the monthly payments. There's, uh, because of the skyrocketing increase in housing prices, especially over the last year, uh, we're seeing that only the top five, 10% of income earners can afford an average house in Canada right now. It's not sustainable. It's not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. That I was actually, until you just said that, I was going to mention the wealth gap is evident (laughs) in the main cities. And, and, and it's funny because, and I love that you've addressed it at every level because there's, there's issues all the way through what I've been kind of tracking in the last year and a half of doing this podcast is this tendency now to be okay with pushing people down the property ladder. I'm noticing where before everyone was talking about, you know, like own and invest actually to take it even further years ago, I recognized the transition from the detached and the single family homes to the condo space, kind of pushing people to the condos. Now it's like, okay, well, let's push them to renters and it's okay to be a rental all the while we're really not positioning ourselves to deal with affordability. And that's where it's headed, right? People are pushing the, you mentioned five, 10%. So we actually see issues at every single level. I think one of the questions before we can come up with a solution is to figure out why, like why, where did that come from? What do you think is the root cause for that affordability crisis? Mm, Bradley, before I answer that question, I just want to get into that excellent point you made that there is a real drive uh, among uh, some stakeholders to encourage people to move into a condo or consider lifelong renting. I, um, as someone who has two small children and lives in an apartment, I can assure you that it is extremely difficult to live in a condo uh, when you have small children. There are some housing environments that are, are really difficult where um, your neighbors basically hate you. So there is a reason why people desire the, um, the space of, uh, and the um, privacy of having, of having their own home. Uh, I also want to challenge the idea a little bit that it's okay to be a lifelong renter. For some people, it is okay. But there are a lot of people who want the stability that comes with home ownership. It means you are not 
subject to um, an eviction. About 20% of renters are forced to move each year. Some want to, some don't. And so it allows you to keep your kids in the same school. It allows you to um, make friends and keep them. Uh, and it means that you're not subject to big rent uh, increases. And because of the um, increase in property prices over time, it means that uh, the wealth of your home can contribute to your retirement. So there are a whole lot of reasons why people would prefer home ownership over renting, and it's not just financial. So I just wanna challenge that um, uh, a little bit. And then in terms of solutions, um, there are a lot of, um, uh, we have a housing platform. It's extremely comprehensive. And the reason is that we are going to have to bring forward legislative and regulatory measures at all three levels of government in order to address the housing affordability crisis we have. Some pockets of um, solutions that I see, one is around increasing supply. We do have a housing shortage and it will require a government to uh, provide incentives, to open up new land uh, and to change zoning rules in order to build more supply, including affordable supply. And uh, it is also critical that we address the affordability issue by bringing in uh, stronger rent controls uh, and really uh, clamping down on the increase in speculation we are seeing. And with those two second uh, legislative uh, solutions, that will really address the affordability issue that renters are facing and will also make it more likely for that first time home buyer who is bidding on a home to get that home if they're competing with uh, an investor or someone who already owns three or four homes. And I think that that, is, it, that has to be part of the solution as well. It's not just about supply. Hey, Jessica, here, here's what's striking to me, okay? I, I'm talking to a lot of folks. We're, 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 we're headhunting right now for some of the top people from different perspectives. And the solutions generally seem to be the same. This is mm -hmm. what's driving me the most crazy is everybody's talking about supply. Now, rent control, obviously there's, there's a debate on that front, but addressing house flipping and, and how do we deal with these issues, the issues all seem to be commonly agreed. What, I, what also strikes me, that surprised me a little bit with what you said um, earlier was the idea that it's okay to own. It's very much, I think, from the rights perspective, when we look over on the left side, the NDP's the liberals perspective, we think, they don't even like housing. Like they don't want to view. In fact, we had Gordy Dent. I recommend anyone go back and listen on the last episode before this one. I chatted with him and um, that the whole idea around real estate, in his opinion, is way too investment oriented. It's too centered around turning it into an investment property rather than housing. And so as I'm looking at all of these things, the fact that there's so many issues that are overlapping, maybe the solutions are exactly the same, but we all recognize the exact same issue, you'd think we would have dealt with it by now. I mean, when we're looking at supply, he actually surprised me. He said he wanted 100,000 houses per year. And I, I don't know if that's part of the NDP's platform. I haven't, I haven't dove that deep, but that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of supply to bring on to the market in order to deal with the current crisis. But, you know, opening land is not something that I hear as an objected to by any, any party. I don't know why is it taking so long? Is it at the, uh, because of the, the levels of government? Like, what is it that's slowing down the process of getting what everybody wants done, done? Mm. You know, that's an excellent question. And I think, that, um, I think it depends on what kind of land we want to open up. I mean, I could take this conversation in many different ways. Let me just deal with the land issue. Okay. Um, 
there's a debate right now around what kind of land we want to open up and if we open it up how how what are we going to build on it and who is it going to benefit and i think that those questions are what is um, separating uh, the political parties a little bit so when it comes to opening up land uh, the ontario government the ford government uh, is currently uh, forcing uh, municipalities to expand their municipal boundaries so we're talking Peel, Halton, Hamilton, so that the municipal boundary expands into nearby farmland and uh, detached single homes, uh, single family homes can be built on that new farmland. That is uh, their current proposal to increase supply. Now the problem- And, and that's it. Is there any density recommendations right. being put forward right now? Bingo, Bradley. So you, you, you're hitting the nail on the head. The government at the same time is saying uh, that municipalities can actually decrease their density requirements within their existing municipal boundary. Now, the problem with that is that single detached homes uh, typically cost a lot more than a you know, two bedroom, three bedroom apartment or a townhouse. So these are the kind of homes that the average uh, household would not be able to afford. And the additional challenge is it's not climate friendly urban planning. If we are um, putting uh, someone uh, in a home 80 to 100 kilometers away from their work site, then we're locking that family into a car dependent lifestyle. They might be spending one and a half to three hours a day driving. And that is not fun on anyone. It means people spend less time with their children and their families. And it also means that we are moving away from creating sustainable transportation patterns, which we need to do in order to meet our climate targets. A better way to increase supply is to encourage the construction of homes, townhomes, duplexes, triplexes, garden suites, and existing neighborhoods. And the beauty of that is people often want to live in neighborhoods that are already established. It means that um, they're often uh, there's already a good school nearby, uh, there's already employment nearby. Uh, it means that municipalities spend less um, money providing additional services and infrastructure to uh, this new population. It is much cheaper to expand a school than it is, for instance, than to build a new one in a new suburb. Uh, and it also will allow us to more easily achieve our climate goals. Uh, so th that's just an example of where the debate is. If we're going to be opening up new land, then, then how do we do that and where do we do it? Our proposal is let's work with what we've got. And the Conservatives are really focused on um, opening up new land and threatening some of the most precious farmland we have in Canada. It's not, I don't believe it's the way to go. And now, to, to be fair in all of this, I think there's a lot of political um, maneuvering happening. I mean, if we look at it from uh, where the votes are coming from, the further out from the cities you go, you tend to get a little bit more of a conservative voter. And the closer you get, the more you have an NDP or a liberal voter. And so in some ways you guys are speaking to your own audience, but I absolutely think there's a place for density. I, I agree with you. Um, I, again, I haven't studied the political, um, the uh, PC party's perspective on density, but when I'm talking to the Ontario Real Estate Association, who's has a financial interest in property valuation growth, they also recommend density. And a lot of those movements favor the investor. Now we can come back to the debate on, do we favor the investor? Or are we trying to create home ownership? If we take a unit, a duplex, create a, sorry, a residential, single family residential and convert it into a fourplex in Toronto, does that create more affordable housing? Yes, from a rental supply perspective, but not from a housing perspective. 
Um, all the while, we also see people moving away, right? We see this, even before COVID, we see a, a spread that's happening. So I think there's a place for both. I mean, it's, it's too bad there's not a way we can kind of both agree and, and address because what's the, what's the harm? We're going to do, what are we going to do? We're going to put $50,000 or 50,000 properties in the urban core. And we're gonna put 50,000 outskirts communities. It sounds like a win. Like why not just do both? <laughs> well, I mean, that's not, that, that's, uh, I think we need to be very careful around uh, where we put homes. It's very expensive to open up new suburbs and it, the quality of farmland that Ontario has is you can see almost all of it if you climb to the top of the CN Tower. So we need to protect what we've got. I also think um, the Ontario um, has uh, what's called a growth plan. So they have uh, a, a commitment and a plan to um, increase density and to provide new homes and new employment opportunities, not just in Toronto and York, but also uh, in regions all across southern Ontario, from Hamilton to Waterloo to Guelph to London. So the idea of increasing density just downtown is, is not sustainable given the, you know, million and a half people that are going to be moving into this area over the next, into Ontario over the next 25 years. It can't just be in the downtown core. Uh, but it does need to be uh, planned and, and thought through so that we're building uh, community and we're meeting our climate goals uh, and we're not um, spending excess money building new infrastructure to um, suburbs that aren't sustainable in any way. It has to be done in a thoughtful way. I wonder if the defense of land is a, is a, a cause in some ways of price increase. I'm sure you guys, I mean, you guys talk about this all day long, I'm sure. But what is your response to that? So like by, by creating the green belt, by protecting lands, we're preventing housing in a sense, creating Toronto into an island all around the same time that we start to see a very rapid increase in home prices. It does Is that just a cost we're willing to accept to protect the land and, and we have to look at them side by side? Or do you guys take the perspective that that's not the reason at all for house prices, it's other factors that's causing the issue? I'm curious what the NDP's response is to that, because I know that's that's generally the the answer for why we should just develop everywhere and anywhere. Hmm. Well, we our goal is to protect the green belt. There is ample supply of land that we can build on in order to meet our growth brand targets and to uh, provide good, safe, affordable housing for our current population and for the 1.5 million people who are looking at moving here over the next 25 years. There are many reasons why housing is so expensive today and why it has become decoupled with the average um, income, income earnings in Ontario. It's, it's as we, I'm sure we can agree there that it's become decoupled from that. Uh, there and the reasons uh, are related to a lack of supply, but they're also related to um, uh, very low interest rates. Uh, they are related to an increase in foreign capital coming into uh, Toronto and Southern Ontario because they see it as an investment. Uh, there is um, uh, more lax mortgage regulations, uh, which allow people to um, borrow equity from their own home in order to uh, buy another one and so on and so on. So there are there are many reasons why housing uh, is so expensive and is uh, more expensive than you know the first time home buyer typically would pay for a home. It's not just about access to uh, land and it's not just about supply, although I certainly see that as being part of the solution. Well, one of the things you mentioned, I agree with 
pretty much everything. And you lost me at one thing you just said with, <laughs> with, with well, how easy great. it I is. Mean, I'm pleased that we can have this conversation. I actually enjoy speaking yeah, to people who politically uh, don't see eye to eye with me. It makes for a healthier conversation, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things you mentioned was the, the qualification, right? The ability to qualify as a, a driving factor for more people buying. What I've experienced with clients and what I'm actually seeing is the exact opposite. Interest rates have come down. So your carrying costs are much lower. And however, the ability to qualify, which actually directly impacts the lower and middle class or the ability to refinance your home to borrow, the lending qual qualifications have actually in the last year become very challenging. The stress test is over 5%. So in, in the, for the exact opposite reason, I actually think that that's causing problems for housing because people are forced to stay. They're forced to stay put. They can't move, right? If we were able to bring some of these costs down and we were able to allow people to have the steady flow starting from the bottom, there'd be this trickle up effect where housing would move. Instead, what I think is happening is, is the money that's going back into real estate is coming, not just from foreign ownership, yes, partially, but I think there's a massive movement of money from the higher age brackets, from the boomers that are retiring and nearing death as an estate planning tool into the lower generations. We see mm -hmm. article with people putting $150,000 as an average deposit for their kids to purchase real estate. So I guess just to kind of throw it back at you a little bit there, when, when you suggest that it's become more easy, I, I actually have seen the opposite. And, and I think we should make it easier. I agree interest rates need to go back up, but from a qualification from these roadblocks, especially in downtown with the double land transfer tax, I think it's actually slowing things down and scaring mm. people. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for asking me to clarify that because the term uh, lax can mean many different things. Uh, I have also applied for a mortgage before. The um, criteria that you need to meet in order to get a loan is stringent and the process I went through, they were very thorough. So I have no criticisms with that. It should be thorough because we do not want home, home uh, owners, prospective home owners to find themselves in a situation where they can no longer afford their mortgage payments uh, because they did some creative accounting when they applied. That's not sustainable. Um, it's, it will lead to an instable housing market and it could ruin people's uh, economic uh, lives. It's not what we want. I guess what I'm, um, what I'm trying to say is that um, with the um, uh, increase in uh, HELOCs and people's use of HELOCs and also the low interest rates, it has made it easier for people to borrow large amounts of equity. Uh, but I also um, think it is uh, very useful that you brought up those larger issues that are leading to um, people being able to put in higher down payments. Thank yeah. you for raising that. Yeah, HELOCs have historically been a, a good tool for doing. It. I just from from where I'm sitting, I'm seeing the lending guidelines. This is on the real estate side. I'm seeing I'm seeing the the guidelines just getting harder to be able to do that because I know many people want to. People, especially our audience, very much views real estate as an investment opportunity, and so if there's a way to do that, we would be doing it constantly. But I, I'm personally finding it's a little slower. Um, but no, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So let's let's maybe transition a little bit. Let's talking about tenants. Now you talk about rent control, but are there more things we can do? Um, obviously, as we're creating housing, there needs to be a distinction on what kind of housing, what percentage of favor should we be giving towards purpose-built rentals versus development? Should we continue to lean on small investors to own properties and rent them out? Or should we allow larger corporations to kind of dominate that that purpose-built space. What's the what's the magic secret sauce here for for kind of being able to deal with both, but specifically looking at the tenants? Well, there's two pieces there. Um, 
I think that increasing supply of purpose-built rentals is absolutely critical to making uh, renting more affordable. I am very encouraged by the CMHC's um, rental housing financing initiative, which provides very generous loan terms to developers that want to build purpose-built rentals. I see a lot of value in making the criteria for that program more strict so that the purpose-built rentals that are built are more affordable for a greater percentage of people. So I'm very much in support um, of that. I don't think that we are going to make housing renting more affordable through increasing the supply of purpose-built rentals on their own. I think it will require uh, legislative changes in order to provide renters with better protection. We are um, in support. It is necessary to expand rent controls so that more renters have uh, they're protected uh, by um, large rent increases, which can um, it's very destabilizing for families and households to have that large rent increase. And it is important that the Residential Tenancies Act is changed so that renters are protected from illegal evictions. There has been a big increase in illegal evictions in my riding and across uh, Toronto. And to explain, you know, that's a situation where um, maybe a new investor buys a home and their tenants in the property are under rent control. Maybe they're paying $1,500 a month for a two bedroom apartment, which is pretty low in Toronto. And in order for the investor to you know, make the mortgage, uh, they will need to um, evict them in, and find tenants who can pay a higher rent. Uh, that is illegal. Uh, but it is common because the um, government does not enforce the rules. So there does need to be better protections for renters in those circumstances, for sure. So uh, I agree. I agree. I think um, I see this all the time. And the well, temptation is absolutely there for investing. I, I deal in the multifamily space, and, and I see this all the time. It is illegal until it's contractually agreed to. And oftentimes, it's done through payment to the renters to leave and part of the reason is it's also a response to rent increasing, not keeping up with the pace of home value growth. And when you're purchasing an investment, the idea is you're supposed to get at least some kind of money out of that property. So there's this feud that's happening and everyone kind of finds themselves on different perspectives on how to deal with that. We've had large investors that are very persistent on making sure that they're you know able to negotiate or work with the tenants. But a lot of those thinking uh, this idea of rent control and higher regulation, the, apart from the rent eviction and um, some of those issues, when I'm talking to tenant advocacy groups, they actually seem pretty confident in the Residential Tenancy Act. They seem to say, you know, it's a pretty good document. The enforcement is the problem. The amount of claims that's coming out of the tenant groups isn't just. And um, so so I guess from the, the other side, then, is if we're, if we're saying, yes, we're going to partner with smaller investors to have housing and create housing, should we not be incentivizing not just larger developers for purpose built, but also smaller investors, and not just making it harder and kind of strangling them, but with sub two percent rate increases uh, year over year on, on their tenancy? Would it not make more sense for us to support those tenants, make it easier, or or in the same way that we give initiatives to larger corporations and in, in, give initiatives or or incentives rather to to smaller investors to try and push that supply or inventory? Um, just curious on your thoughts on those things. 
Um, you know, when you're talking, um, the thing that comes into my mind is core development group. Uh, core development group is, um, you know, it is a larger uh, investment firm. It's not your mom and pop, but uh, core development group has uh, decided to uh, move into um, buying single family homes uh, and converting them into rentals. And the challenge uh, with that is that it forces people who would be in the market to buy those first time homes. So we're talking higher income renters. It forces those people to stay within the rental market. And the challenge with that is that when you've still got these high income renters uh, in the market, instead of buying their own home and you know, building a you know, community and a life, they stay in their rental properties and they drive up the rent for everyone else because they're not moving up so that you know, middle income renter is not able to move into their apartment. So it actually creates um, an issue with supply as well. And that is uh, because most investors, uh, their goal is to buy homes that are already existing homes. So they're not necessarily increasing supply. What um, investors tend to do is they um, increase the cost of homes that already exist. And that impact, impacts renters uh, as well. I do agree with you that the Residential Tenancies Act has a lot of strengths to it. The challenge is around uh, enforcement. I do believe the Residential Tenancies Act should be strengthened, but I also think that one of the biggest issues we face is around enforcement. Most uh, components of the Residential Tenancies Act, there's very little, um, there's very little that a tenant can do uh, if a landlord is not um, regularly maintaining the home, or has illegally evicted them. The Landlord-Tenant Board um, is typically not a renter's friend. Uh, the 90% of the cases that go to the Landlord-Tenant Boards are initiated by landlords. Overwhelmingly, those are for non-payment of rent, which is, I mean, that's the Landlord-Tenant Board's job. It's to deal with issues between homeowners and tenants, that's their job. But because um, of the time, the length of time that is uh, that passes before you can actually get a hearing. Uh, most renters don't see the Landlord Tenant Board as a place to resolve disputes. So there's large chunks of the Residential Tenancies Act. You know, it might, it might show that a renter has a lot of protections, but in practice, um, the renter is um, in a tough spot. Yeah, I, I really respect, I really liked your answer there about the, the smaller investor and the habits of a small investor picking it up and not truly adding housing supply. I think that's valid. I think that's a very good point. Hopefully, if there is assistance, it's done in areas that do, in fact, increase housing within the dense areas. And, and on that front, I, um, I guess you're right. And I'd like to say when you're right and on the other side as well, I, that's a good perspective. And um, in many ways, I do agree. Investors, though, it's because of the nature. I mean, Core Development Group is doing what they're doing because they see that as the best opportunity right now, which is a scary thought for people who own single family homes in the suburbs. Because they're gonna they're gonna take over, and they've even announced what areas they're doing it, so you can get ahead of the curve. So I guess to to look at all of these things, I'm curious, and not just to kind of poke at either side. I'm curious what is currently happening within the government at the at the table right now that you like that you see as this is good progress that's being made at the at the provincial level in addressing some of these issues we talked about today. Mm, thank you for raising that. There are two measures that. I think the Ontario government is uh, heading in the right direction on. One is to uh, increase density requirements next to transit zones. 
that is um, good from a climate perspective and it's good from an increasing new supply in the right areas perspective. And so what that looks like is if um, there's a subway in downtown Toronto, they are um, in, uh, dramatically increasing development around that area. Good. The challenge is that uh, it is important that the housing that is created, uh, there is a component of affordable housing connected to that. This is um, above, like the air rights above a station, it's public land, it's provincial land. So a developer does not need to pay the 30% cost to access that land. There should be stronger affordable housing requirements uh, connected to those developments. But the idea of building um, what's called transit-oriented development uh, is, is a good thing. The second uh, piece that I think that the Ontario government is doing well on uh, is moving forward with inclusionary zoning. So that's a requirement that if for any new build over a certain height uh, or a certain number of units, a percentage of them have to be affordable. And the, the good thing uh, with that is other cities uh, such as New York City, so we're talking world-class cities where uh, development is desirable, developers want to uh, move in and invest. Uh, inclusionary zoning can be very effective in increasing the amount of supply that um, first-time homeowners can buy, as well as um, rental units uh, that are affordable as well if it's a purpose-built rental. The challenge is that only Toronto is moving forward on inclusionary zoning and the um, requirements that the Ontario government uh, is requiring for inclusionary zoning and what the city is doing, it doesn't go far enough. The units that are being built, they're not affordable for long enough. There's not a, a high enough percentage of affordable units. The definition of what is affordable uh, is too high for what moderate income people and low income people can afford. So there are some concerns that I have with it, but the idea of inclusionary zoning and in transit oriented development those ideas are good ones. And I want to congratulate the Ontario government for moving forward on them. I love it. I love it. I, I'm often sick of hearing movement from, this is a municipal issue to provincial issue to federal issue. No, no, this is a provincial issue and the up and the down that we see all the time. And I love to hear that there are some things that are happening at this, in this case at the provincial level as well. This has been a really good chat, Jessica. I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of give us a different perspective on how we can deal with housing and the housing crisis in the GTA. Where can people find you on social or online if they want to get to know a little bit more about some of the, the cool things you guys are doing? Thanks, Bradley. Uh, my website is jessicabellmpp.ca. I'm on Twitter, jessicabellto. I, I encourage people to give me feedback, follow me. If there are folks out there uh, that are stakeholders, uh, investors, uh, organizations that want to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with me to share their perspective, I welcome it. Love that. Love that. Folks, if you guys got some value of the show, you can also leave questions down if you're following us on YouTube, but support the channel, share this on Instagram, share this with a friend. And uh, we, we pride ourselves these days on having different perspectives come in. And Jessica, I really appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully everyone can give us uh, pass the message forward, give us a like and leave us a comment, but really appreciate you taking the time and thank you for all the work that you do and keep, keep up the good work. Thank you, Bradley. Have a good day.